My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Everywhere, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Daniel Scheffler. This week's commandment, thou shalt save the fucking planet. Well, here's the thing. I wish I knew exactly how to save the planet. I simply do not have the answers. But as a frequent flyer, every week traveler, it certainly is something I want to be thinking about as I see this great Earth. I do, however, think there are small ways, like thinking about personal waste and being more conscious of how to take, take, take from the planet. And then there are more systemic, big ways that government and big tech can help us. Perhaps the problem is we can't agree on a simple thing. Just how important is nature to you? The Amazon is on fire as we speak. Why does it seem like half the planet cares and the other half much less so? Michael and I talk about microplastics in the oceans all the time, and now we've started wondering about the fish we consume. Poisson de plastique. Doesn't that sound delicious? Also, Elon Musk's mission to Mars feels like it's becoming a real possibility. So perhaps some are even less inclined to care about nature on the third rock from the sun. But alas, the future is here, and I think the future is now. We can agree that a productive, diverse natural world plus a stable climate have been the very basics that have formed our civilization's successes. And so, recycling feels really good to me. When I go to my local farmer's market, or pop in at a farm stall, or when I shop at places like Organic Farmer, that's with a PH in case you wanted to look that up, it does all feel fantastic to me. And I love that when I walk around Tokyo, there are no trash cans that it's my responsibility to take my trash home with me. But let's be honest, what does it really mean? What am I actually impacting as I tread all over the world with my sneakers made from ocean plastic that has been recycled? I do think we need to be talking about regenerative farming. And the best way to see this and understand this is to travel to places where it's being done on big and small scales. In fact, we should be doing that right now. I hope that President Warren next year will start offering subsidies to organic farming when she takes office. That can be my side hustle, organic farming lobbyist. Okay, so back to what feels utterly wonderful. Whilst I'm traveling, what feels really good is when I remember to bring my reusable water flask slash coffee flask. I recently started counting how many plastic bottles of water get foisted on me during a transcon flight. And it's not pretty. Then for the moment, being part of the Paris Climate Agreement does also feel utterly fantastic. It is in fact Climate Week in New York as we speak. And just knowing that there are forces from all over the globe that are beyond my comprehension working on helping this planet well, fuck, that feels sensational. As someone who's on board an aeroplane often, I realize that I'm also doing my fair share of harm to the planet. I'm also not suggesting we don't fly ever again with all some kind of perspective. So now my friend Nick, who lives in San Luis Obispo, plants a tree for every trip I take on a plane. Mother Earth thanks him actively. So, as a frequent, frequent traveler, I'm clearly not doing enough. So what else should I be doing or thinking about doing? I am recycling. 
I'm always shopping local. I do turn off the lights and air conditioner in hotel rooms when I'm not there. And of course, I do not need my hotel linen and towels washed every day. I think about new ways to aid in this department all the time. Of course, I would love any suggestions, so please reach out. Ecotourism was a movement that started to take shape back in the 1980s. It's the oldest and most commonly used word for it. And now we say things like sustainable tourism or green tourism, responsible, ethical, mindful. Ecotourism is essentially all about bringing nature and wildlife conservationists with local communities and the responsible travel industry together to ensure development is focused on long-term sustainability rather than short-term profit. So let me tell you a little story about a dear friend's mother. Let's just call her Lai Lai. Lai Lai recently told me that climate change and the destruction of this planet is part of the bigger plan. It will rid the earth of the glut of population and it will make space for the right amount of humans to be here. It is, after all, natural selection, a sort of natural order of construction and destruction. When she said it, it felt so severe to me. But there's something to it, and I just cannot stop thinking about it. Maybe the planet is saying, okay, enough, parasites be gone. Speaking of Lai well, she's extreme. But nobody's pushing the conversation forward the way she does. As much as I like Al Gore, he just isn't hitting the same notes that Lai can. She's dedicated her whole life to all this change. And you know what shocks her most? The fact that she thinks nobody's speaking out. And she's right. Why are we not all speaking up? Last week in New York, kids took off school to go protest for the planet. And I feel that's crucial, but not enough. They may actually need to call Lai to lead their march and be their mascot. She's charismatic and speaks her truth. In the 1970s, living in the original Venice Beach, she would pile the kids in the car and head over to the fast food chain's drive-thru. She'd pull up and the family would roll down their windows and yell at whichever ill-fated teenager was earning minimum wage at the window. How could you use styrofoam and all that plastic? Today she drives a Tesla and she uses it for dumpster diving in San Francisco. She recently told me that people are discovering all her good spots, but she still does love it. Because as Lai Lai says, they throw out all this ugly fruit that is perfectly good to use for jams and who knows what else. I adore Lai Lai, even though she told me that my very expensive cologne was making her tongue tingle and it was probably not good for her biome. She lives on hundreds of acres in Yosemite, and she has Woofers, the World Organization of Organic Farmers, who come and work and live on her land. They learn how to go back to the land. And this is where my travel thoughts come into play. Isn't this an amazing way to travel the world? Like, let's go to a kibbutz and learn how farming is done in Israel. Or what if we traveled to Bolivia and see how Klaus Meyer's teams are employing young people in La Paz to learn to cook with native ingredients in order to rely less on imports? Or what about going to farms outside Abu Dhabi and working on them for a day or two? Because who knew that the UAE even had serious farming happening? Lila is inspiring, to say the least. In her extremity, she does somewhat push people away. But that's what the fringe does to you. But without her, we'll all be ruining the planet every day with hardly enough regard for this life. Can someone please give this woman her own Netflix show or a podcast? She can kind of be the Marie Kondo of the environment. She would come into your home or your business or your country and show you how to clean it up. Imagine this. No, no, put that down. That's far too much plastic, Daniel. You do not need to use single-use gloves to touch that meat. Daniel, are you going to use those vegetable scraps? They are very good for the manure. And those carrot and beet shavings? 
They are perfect for coloring my hair. I hope you're planning to drink that urine, Daniel. It's very good for your immune system. We all need a little lie lie in our lives. In all my travels, I find it difficult to always see and understand what everybody's doing to save the planet. Lila excluded, of course. A few places that stick out to me on my travels are Botswana, Guyana, and Costa Rica. Of course, the obvious northern European countries I've been to, like Denmark and Sweden and Finland, are also included. In Botswana, they took the country's entire military or defense budget and poured it all into conservation. Just think about that impact. If we slivered even 2% of our defense budget into conservation, it could change the whole country. Costa Rica is by far the most eco-conscious tourism place on the planet right now, with an endless amount of regulation around hotels and resorts, being able to build and operate on principles that are good for the planet. Less waste, less destruction. In Guyana, they aim to achieve 100% clean and renewable energy supply by 2025. And then I found this incredible travel app operator, Rutopia. They're based in Mexico and they're offering biocultural trips. Rutopia is a platform that allows travelers to search for authentic experiences outside the conventional routes. They access rural communities, especially the indigenous ones, with hosts who want to share the incredible natural richness of their land. They preserve the natural and cultural heritage of Mexico by revolutionizing tourism. Okay, so what is going to make the biggest impact? That's probably what we should be thinking about on every trip we take. I try not to preach, but rather want to have an open dialogue and try and figure this all out together. We could save the planet, but first we need to find some common ground. I faint when I see photos of seals covered in oil. My heart caves when I see forests on fire. But that's not everyone's messaging. It needs to be something that affects everyone in their daily life. Okay, fine. Let's sci-fi this. Margaret Atwood's new book is out after all, and I just flew out of Gilead. This is the Netflix series you've been waiting for. All humans get a horrible disease, infected by the Earth from its very core, all at once. The more you do to help save the planet, whether it's banal recycling or big legislation, it all starts to heal you. The cure is to help the planet. If you do nothing, you just start wasting away, slowly dying, killing yourself every moment. And if you help, you may live. Maybe this is already happening, and we just don't know it. And now let's talk to Holly, my dearest friend, for some conservation history. I sat here being silent for minutes. <laughs> you were so busy on your phone Ready getting Elvis Costello tickets. Have a little chat. I did that before we started. Don't throw me into the just bus. Just kidding. <laughs> These are very important things. But one of the things that you talked about was conservation. And it's an interesting subject because different areas of the world have such different histories of conservation. And I thought we could talk a little bit about the juxtaposition between Western culture and then how conservation has been handled in South Africa because they intertwine during the colonial era and some interesting things happen. Do you know when the first national park in the world was created? I do not. It was 1778. In America? No. Do you want to guess what country? It's one you've been to. I mean, that doesn't narrow things down very much. No, for you. it doesn't narrow things down at it was all. It's in Mongolia. Oh, I knew this. Yes. And it's interesting because there is debate over when people would say historically the conservation movement began. Like a lot of people link it to industrialization, which is natural because there was a a resultant reaction to that, that there was concern over what we were doing. But really, what is often discussed as the first conservation document, at least in Western culture, dates back to 1662. Wow. And that was a paper titled Silva or a Discourse on Forest Trees and the Propagation of Timber in His Majesty's Dominions. 
And that was written by John Evelyn and presented to the Royal Society. And that was actually at the urging of the Royal Society as the king was planning to build some more fantastic things and they wanted to consider what that would result in in terms of the forestry. It's kind of interesting because he really does talk about things that we're still discussing today. There's a lot about deforestation in England and his concerns about it at the time. And he really was one of the first people, at least on paper, to introduce this idea of replenishment of forest resources. So as you're cutting down trees for lumber, we need to be replacing those trees with saplings and seedlings. And it was actually really successful. People weren't like, you're a nut. What are you talking about? They're like, oh, these are things we should think about. But really, it wasn't, as I said, until the early industrial era that we really first start seeing people raise some red flags about it. Prussia and France started looking at these problems as early as the 18th century. So in the 1700s, they were considering how they were going to manage their forests and how agriculture was going to be managed to not completely deplete the land of its options uh, and its natural resources. And then the Napoleonic Wars had some other issues. That is actually when the first conservation laws came into being, was during the Napoleonic Wars, which were specifically related to teak trees. People Hmm. were very concerned about them. And so that was the first time someone said, if a tree is smaller than this, you cannot cut it down. Like, they had to be mature trees only. And then as, you know, science developed, there was more and more information that people could kind of feed into the papers that they were writing and the research that they were doing. And slowly over time, we get more and more interest. Theodore Roosevelt in the U.S. was a big proponent of conservation at a time when the conservationists and preservationists were kind of at odds. Uh, In case anyone doesn't know, conservation is about management of resources. Preservation doesn't want to touch the resources, but just essentially cordon them off and let them be. But at the same time, if we turn and spin the globe a little and look at South Africa, there's an interesting thing. So before colonization, before Europeans decided to move in and do their thing, there was kind of already a natural harmony with the natural world and the people, and they kind of just inherently understood that this is not a thing we should strip and destroy for our own benefit. There was a religious element to some of that, where they just naturally held certain things in a sacred space, and so they would not touch them. One of the things that is interesting is the idea of totem animals, like sacred animals could not be hunted at all, and that was, they didn't need a law, they just understood that that was the thing that was off limits. And then scarce products were really just reserved for things like honoring people in the highest levels of society. They were not something like, oh, I, he got an ivory thing. I want an ivory thing. Let's get all the ivory things. And then suddenly you have destroyed the ivory sources, <laughs> the beautiful animals that produce them. And of course, during the colonial period, Westerners moved in and wanted to build all the things and did the same things that were causing problems in Europe and the U.S. There was also a strange thing that happened, which is that conservation grew as an idea, but places that were demarcated for conservation were also only for rich people to enjoy. In some cases, there were entire groups of indigenous peoples that were moved off of land because they were like, no, no, we want to save this land so white people can go stand in it and have wonder. I know you lived here a long time, but you go somewhere else, which is kind of a a really messed up way to look at it. And of course, eventually, particularly post-apartheid, that's really when South Africa established its more modern approach to, like, park management and looking at truly nature as something that needed to be cared for and protected and and how that kind of is still, I mean, we are all, every country, I think, with few exceptions, is still working out the best ways to deal with things because as technology evolves and grows We are accidentally depleting resources we weren't even thinking about. Even in the early days of coal, there were people going, this doesn't last forever, do you understand that? But we're still having the conversation 150 years later. But it's one of those things where I think the idea of conservation kind of gets lumped in as a, um, by some folks, not everybody, it almost gets seen as like, no, this is a... Like a hippy dippy thing. This is right. You it's know, a nice to have, not a need to right. have. Right. This is this is for those people that are Socialists. just communers with nature. But what these people before colonization in South Africa inherently understood is that there's a symbiosis involved that you can't deny. And if right. you completely destroy an environment and the animals there for your own benefit, you are ultimately destroying yourself. Maybe not yourself in your generation, but your people behind you 
are going to reap the bad results of all of those right. those desire-driven decisions that were made that ultimately hurt both the earth and its creatures. Well, like in South Africa, 1994 happened. Nelson Mandela came out of prison mm-hmm. and it became a democracy. And suddenly South Africa opened up to the world. Suddenly it became popular. And at that point was the first luxury safari lodges that opened, Singita. They were like, wait, everyone's looking to South Africa. We should do an incredible place where people could come and appreciate the wild and conservation. That's when Singita started and they started building these beautiful lodges so that it wasn't just camping in the bush. Think like Meryl Streep out of Africa. Right. Like they turned it into a much more finessed experience. It's glamping with animals. Well. A little. Even more <laughs> fabulous than <laughs> yeah. glamping. I mean, Singita has this um, incredible footprint in South Africa and Tanzania and Zimbabwe where they've had very wealthy founders and investors bring a kind of needed conservation element to luxury tourism and safari, where if you want to go, there's like a huge amount of the money goes to conservation. I mean, in Tanzania, in the Grumeti Reserve, which is where the Singita is, they have 900 full-time anti-poachers patrolling, which is incredible. So when you go to the right places, you realize that your money's going towards conservation. Whereas like a country like Botswana did this amazing thing where they took the entire military budget and put it all towards conservation, which is incredible. And when you go there and you stay at um, Wilderness has these incredible lodges, Little Mambo and Mambo, and you spend time with some of the game rangers, they'll explain to you how every little element can now be funded by these projects. I mean, Africa is like so important because it hasn't been developed as much as a place like America has or Europe. Right. right? The the level of industrialization is Correct. just not there to create that. Right. Now for a slight respite, and I'll be right back with Everywhere after a word from our sponsors. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've just been somewhere. What say we go everywhere now? Well, I guess like the thing that we haven't talked about with all of this is that there's an element of global warming attached to all of this. The planet is warming, animals are migrating in different ways, land is changing. So the grassland may not be the same grassland as it was. And these animals are forced to move. And where will they go? So this is my thing. I mean, you worked at a zoo, right? So like I I volunteered at an aquarium. I always say you work there. I mean, you volunteered at an aquarium. What's interesting for me is that in some ways I feel very uncomfortable with zoos. I feel uncomfortable watching an animal in captivity. I'm used to seeing animals in, I guess, from a game drive vehicle, but not in a cage or large cage. I'm seeing them in a more natural setting. I know it's also fenced in, but that's for anti-poaching reasons. Right. But I have a sort of uncomfortability with zoos. I, I like... I kind of appreciate the animals, but I feel like bad that they are in a cage. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like we should acknowledge, right, there are much different levels of zoos and aquariums. Like good zoos and aquariums are often dealing with rescue animals. And there is a balance. I completely understand the desire to not see those institutions exist anymore. There is a flip side, though, right, where at the same time, I think to the average person, 
it's a teaching tool to really drive home the message of conservation. It's one thing to look at a picture in a book or even look at a, a documentary, but then when you see one of these majestic creatures, hopefully in as naturalized an environment as possible, up close, it shifts you. Like you realize really, well, yeah, like you go really to Africa. what we're fighting for, like exactly, really what exactly. needs to be saved. Well, when you go to Africa, that's the thing that hits you. It's right. impossible for it not to. Right. If you're seeing this animal in this state yeah. and you think, wait, this is with nature. It has to remain like this. Yeah. And the thing is, right, like not everybody is going to get the chance to go to Africa. And that's where I'm like, no, I get it. But again, it's very tricky. And it it is one of those things where you want to make sure that the animals are getting optimal care. And I mean, I've had the good fortune to speak to like veterinarians in facilities like that. And and it kind of breaks my heart because I know there are people who are vehemently against the very places they work. But when I see these people, they are dedicated exclusively to really like, their lives are about that work. I mean, they're like the people that sometimes don't go home for a week at a time. Their kids don't see them because whatever animal might need their attention at any given moment. So they'll just sleep on the floor in their office. I mean, there's a side of it I think that people don't realize that for the most part, nobody gets into like becoming a biologist or a veterinarian of exotic animals for the money or fame, right? And they're certainly not there because they don't love animals. So that's like the the trick, right? It's not a high-paying profession. It does require a lot of personal sacrifice, particularly if you're working in a big facility like that. Because quite frankly, like a whale doesn't care if you have some stuff scheduled. Maybe they're sick or maybe they're pregnant or maybe they're, you know, there are any number of things that might. And those people will almost always just shut down their lives and be like, okay, well, I have to take care of this thing and that's all it is. So that's like the flip side of that discussion is that one, it does, I think, drive conservation for some people. And two, there are a lot of people behind the scenes you never see that really have put a lot of their personal lives aside just to make sure those animals are cared for. Well, Holly, have you ever been bitten by an animal? Oh, yeah. Tell me about your near-death experience with an animal. I don't think I have a near-death one. I mean, I certainly, like, I grew up, when I was very young, we lived in Arizona. And when it would rain heavily, like, the tarantulas all come out, and I loved them, so I would just scoop them up and put them in, like, a (laughs) coffee can and be like, this is my pet. I don't know why I always named them Bill, but I did. My mother was petrified and was always, like, at the very edge of her nerves, possibly going to lose her mind because I would walk outside and pick up a tarantula without thinking. But I never got bit by any of those. I did get attacked by a pack of dogs when I was a kid. That was a little scary. Yeah, it was like in, in a completely not remote place. It was like in my neighborhood. But there was just, there were a bunch of stray dogs that ran around and... I was terrified of them, and I'm sure that didn't help matters, but they chased me at one point down my driveway. We had a long driveway and tackled me, and I was very scared. Wow. And my dad came out and fired a pistol and scared them away. Of course he did. (laughs) Well, Holly, thank you so much for being with me today. So in case you want to hear Holly talk some more, which she does all the time— One, bless you. Two, (laughs) you can do that on Stuff You Missed in History class, which is my regular history podcast. That is at Missed in History everywhere on social media or MissedInHistory.com. All the things you didn't know were fascinating. There they are. Bye, Holly. Bye, baby. For my next interview, I'm with Governor of Washington State, Jay Inslee. He recently ran for president, but is now more focused on the environment. Tell me how you are today. Uh, I'm great. I'm in a great state, the Evergreen State. We got some nice rain yesterday, which might hopefully suppress the forest fires that are increasing because of climate change. So that's good news. We like summer rain on occasion. I'm not complaining. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I believe there's a story of you walking and standing in some of the fires, the aftermath of the fires. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, unfortunately, as governor, I have experienced firsthand the face of climate change, which is the most obvious one is the fires that we've had, both in Washington and California. I've gone to the multiple communities here in Washington when we've had an emergency response where lives have been lost. Uh, I've been in California and walked through Paradise, California. This is a town of 25,000. It's not just some little crossroads that burned to the ground And I walked through at night with Governor Jerry Brown's emergency coordinator, and it was like we spent about an hour 
and there was nobody there. And it was like the scene of a post-apocalypse Hollywood movie. I've been to Seminole Springs where I've met a woman who really stands up out to me in this trail of disasters, a woman named Marsha Moss who showed me her entire ownership was a little pool of melted aluminum, which used to be her mobile home. So I've seen that, and I've walked uh, with people who uh, have real tears over a real crisis. So this is not an abstraction to me. This is real people with real suffering. And I wish I could say it's just fires. It's the flood victims in the Midwest who I've met, like Regina Haddock, who lost her nonprofit called Address for Success. They took care of victims of domestic violence until her nonprofit was washed away by the floods. It's the people in the Everglades who love the Everglades. Something like 40,000 acres of the swamp was on fire. When your swamps are on fire, you know, you know you've got a problem. So I've had many walks with many people who are feeling this looming disaster that's not a future thing, it's a reality today. So you can say, uh, I know a lot of folks who've been affected by this. How do you think it affects travelers, people that are traveling internationally, locally, whether you're going to Disney or going to Denmark, I think it's important to look at climate change. Like, how do you think people engage with it? It's interesting you ask that question because the only plus side I can think of from a travel perspective is it has encouraged some people to travel to locations they otherwise may not have because they realize it's their last chance. Is you actually see people in some sense promoting the idea, if you'd like to see a glacier, you need to come now because they won't be here for another decade or two. The fact that Glacier National Park in the near future won't have glaciers is stunningly damaging to me. I'm just heartsick about this, but other people have got off the couch and gone see the glaciers. So that's the best downside you can possibly think if there is one. But the obvious questions are, as people are encountering this themselves, travelers uh, in the heat of Europe this year, I've talked to some people that just were really troubled uh, by the heat. It's 90 degrees in Anchorage, for goodness sakes. If you want to walking in the permafrost now, you kind of melt, you, you walk in the muck because it's melting. There's real consequences to this. You know, the folks, when you think about Malibu as a paradise in the coastline of California, not so much when people are now terrified and wondering how I'm going to live here, actually. So it has real-world impacts on people. Hopefully, travel is helpful in inspiring people to get engaged in the effort to defeat climate change, because the more you see of the world, the more you understand it's a very beautiful place. It's very unique. There's one little blue planet hanging out in space, and it's very gorgeous. And the more you travel, the more you understand the, all the multiple things that are threatened. Uh, the folks who would like to go to scuba dive on coral reefs, very significant parts of the coral reefs are very much endangered. We know the Great Barrier Reef had tremendous bleaching events. In our uh, national parks, we've had huge bleaching events of coral, and that's the reality right now. So you literally are having the disappearance of major attractions in the travel universe featured around the beauty of the earth as we know it. So uh, travel, uh, I hope, can help by encourage people to get engaged in this mission statement. How do you think we make this real for people day to day? Like, the problem is that so much of it comes from a speech, right? So much of it is like being you being told by your teacher and you being <clears> a bad boy. You must recycle. You have to do this, have to do this. And people seem to, especially America, where it's all about freedom of choice. It's all about the First Amendment. It's all about, I don't want government to tell me what to do. Like, how do we get it into people's minds that this should be important to you? People are moving very rapidly on this issue. The polling has indicated that. And the reason is, it is not speeches by politicians. I wrote a book about this 12 years ago. And at that point, it was an abstraction with people. Now it is reality. So that reality is changing hearts and minds, including in the United States. 75% of people at least say we ought to do something about climate change. And so the public is now there on the vast majority of Americans that want to see action against climate change. It is unfortunately just one of the parties and politicians that have refused to act. Half of the Republicans in the United States believe we should deal with climate change, but none of the Republican politicians are because they're all afraid of Donald Trump's shadow. It's time to get rid of that shadow, get a president who will realize that 
Wind turbines don't cause cancer, they cause jobs. Climate change is not a hoax, it's a present reality that's burning down Paradise, California and flooding Hamburg, Iowa, and making the shoreline of Miami Beach uh, an inundation zone. And it is true. This is our very last chance. We will not have another chance to deal with this uh, other than the next administration. So tell me something personal that for you set this off for you to work on this. The longer term is my dad was a biology teacher. I grew up in the outdoors. My mother and father helped fix the alpine meadows on the shoulders of Mount Rainier during the summers. I certainly fell in love with those alpine meadows and forests early in my life, and I know that they're threatened right now. I have a picture in my office of a magenta paintbrush, which is a little flower. The only place it grows is in Washington state, essentially. And it may be extinct in 100 years because the tree line's moving up with temperature changes, which are crowding out the alpine meadows. So this is something that goes back to my youth, but it also, on the other bookend of my life as a grandparent, you know, I was walking with my grandson a couple of years ago on the beach, and I was seeing him flip over rocks and looking at the little urchins and everything. And you just see his little face light up. When, when you see a kid see a new life form and you see that connection, it's very exciting to watch. And I realized that that feeling he had was the same one I had when I was seven or eight. My dad would take me down to the shoreline of Carkeek Park, and I remember that feeling of seeing limpets and urchins for the first time. So this is deep with us. The reason I've used travel as this vehicle is because it changes your perception. It puts mm-hmm. you somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it forces you in so many ways to find humanity, to find connections. How do you think we have that discussion internationally? Well, you know, my friend Rick Steves, who's been doing tremendous work on on behalf of, of travel, and he looks at, at this not so much as an industry, uh, but he looks at it as a, a way of, of enlightenment, and it is. And people bring things home much more than postcards. They bring home a new appreciation, A, of common humanity. And, you know, I know it's like perhaps a cliche, but it's true. The more you travel, the more you understand that we're all the same, right? So that's a cliche, but the most important aspect of travel But as far as a climate change issue, you will find anywhere in the world today you go, you will see impacts of climate change. It doesn't matter where it is. If you go to the Arctic, you will see melting glaciers and tundra. If you go to India, it's too hot to go outside. Paris, it's really uncomfortable to walk around just because of the heat. So we have a common humanity because we're all mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters but we're a common humanity because we're all threatened by a common threat right now. And I actually think that this has the potential to be one of the most unifying aspects in human history because it's the one thing we've all faced at the same time. Every single human on Earth, several billion people, face the same threat at the same time, and it requires a joint unified effort to defeat it. So travel could be a very important part and aspect of that to give us a chance of success, and that's what we need desperately right now. Now, everyone for a time out, except for our sponsors. We'll be right back with more Everywhere. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome once again to Everywhere. Let's hop back to it. For my next interview, I'm with Sanjun, the CEO of Conservation International. We are at his DC office overlooking Reagan Airport, talking about how important conservation is. I think at, at the core of most people, 
there is a strong thread of empathy and there's a strong thread of wanting to be liked and, and like. And I think if you are really putting yourself on the line and you're saying something in a very honest and thoughtful, open way, I think most human beings will find some resonance with it, even if they disagree with you. I do think, though, that for the vast majority of the world, the conclusion that I'm coming to when it comes to conservation or climate change or anything like that, that these changes are not going to happen because I'm telling someone they need to do it. They're going to happen because people are going to see that it's in their own self-interest, their own, as our founder says, their own enlightened self-interest to make that change happen. And for me, that's been a big shift because when we learned about conservation, we learned about nature and we learned about wildlife and the environment, the predominant language is a language of love. You watch David Attenborough, read E.O. Wilson, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning author. You read any of these people, it's, a, it's an ode to love, the love of the world and the wonders of the world. And the truth is, I feel that. I feel that throbbing in me all the time. I joke and say I have a little cabin in Montana because I like going for a walk in the woods knowing there's something bigger than me, greater than me, grander than me, older than me that can come out of the woods and take my head off. I kind of like that, but it's not a great value proposition for most of the world. Save the forest, it might one day kill you. For most of the planet, I think it has to be not just a language of love, it also has to be a language of value. And if people don't see the value in it, it's going to be hard to really motivate them to make those changes at the scale that we need to make those changes. How do we show people that value? So the question I would ask you this is, do you truly believe that we need nature? Do you truly believe that? Do you truly believe that the world is better with wild places and with nature surrounding us? I actually do, because I can't think of places, the most environmentally damaged places also tend to be at the very bottom of the pit when it comes to every form of human development index. Go to Haiti and then go to the Dominican Republic. You'll see the difference in how nature is protected. And it's obvious to me who has suffered partly because of the destruction of nature, right? So it's not like I've gone to a lot of places where they've done a great job of destroying nature and now it's a flourishing, amazing place with incredible intellectual stimulation and money and all that. It doesn't tend to work that way. It tends to work. I was just in Rwanda. You know, this is a country that has come through a cataclysm. And you look at the way they talk about nature. You took it the way they take care of plastics. You take, look at the way that they deal with waste disposal or about conservation, about gorillas. You know, the, the head of the uh, Rwanda Development Board was speaking to me and basically said, look, we're a small country and our protected areas are pretty small, but we're still able to do quite a lot. And amazingly, we're actually expanding a gorilla habitat this year because the gorillas are out of room. They've grown. The population's actually grown. So I think these things go hand in hand. I think there's pretty good evidence to show when environmental destruction happens, it then is followed by human misery. Mm. So what is your plan as a person and your plan for Conservation International? Wow, that's a big question. I like my big questions. <laughs> That's a really big question. I genuinely believe that we have 10 to 12 years to sort of get this equation right. It doesn't mean that in 12 years the world blows up, but it does mean that the path we're on is the path we're on. And we're not going to be able to jolt the world into a path of sustainability after that time. The science shows that. The data is pretty strong on that. These are the best years of my life. I look at my team around here, you know, half our staff are millennials. You know, I don't want them to live a wasted life. I really don't. So for me, my, my plan, my plan for myself personally, but also the team that I surround myself with is let's not live a wasted life. Let's go all in. Let's go for it. We're never going to regret it. I know that. I know that 100% we're not going to regret it. So Conservation International is built on a very simple premise that people need nature. We truly believe that Humans thrive when nature thrives. What we are pushing really hard are three things. The first is we want to protect all of nature that is most important to climate. It turns out that the destruction of nature, particularly forests, particularly tropical forests like the Amazon, turns out that the destruction of nature is about 
of the contributions of greenhouse gas emissions that's going up into the atmosphere. Put another way, if you look at the worst emitters in the world, if, if deforestation was a country, it would be China would be the worst, the United States would be right there, then it would be deforestation. That's what we want to tackle. We want to end the destruction of intact forests and big tropical forest systems. Two, we want to massively increase how much ocean is under conservation protection. The oceans have got very little, little of our attention. They're hugely important to three, 400 million people on the planet who depend on it for their primary source of protein. They're vastly underprotected. So we want to massively increase the amount of oceans under conservation protection and conservation management. And we have a plan for doing that. And the third is more in a funny way, in a more subtle way, a more interesting problem. You know this word sustainability? And we throw it around all the time. I can tell you commodities that are sustainable, like this coffee that I'm drinking actually right now is actually sustainably grown in that it's grown in a way that doesn't tend to damage the environment. I can't tell you a place that is sustainable. No one will fully agree what that actually means. We want to demonstrate that. So there are 16 places around the world where we are working with governments, communities, and companies to demonstrate sustainability at scale. And what I mean by that is people can grow things and live a better life without destroying nature that they need. So if I can show you coffee production going up fourfold while deforestation going down by half, I say that place is approaching sustainability. Something that we need to talk about is how do we translate conservation mm -hmm. into a travel sphere? So to me, it's obvious. You pack your bags, you get on the plane, and you go to Costa Rica, and you see, fuck, man, they're doing something differently here. Yeah. Like, how do you understand the importance? Because I don't think people do. We talk about sustainability, as you said, so loosely. We talk about being green so easily. But how do we tell people to travel, to see this, to understand this? I don't have an answer. Fair enough. I have a thought. I love your thoughts. We live in a hyper-disconnected world. The more connected we are in some ways, the more disconnected we are. And there is no sense of geography anymore. There's no sense of place. I think one of the wonderful things that travel does, even though I fully appreciate the environmental cost of travel, and we can talk about that, one of the wonderful things it does is, it, if done right, it really reconnects human beings. It connects them to each other and connects them to place and connects them to nature. And I think that's a very, very powerful thing that we have lost. And we haven't lost it for centuries. We've lost it for probably the last, say, 100 years, 80 years. And we need to find that again. You know, I can sit here in my office and fire off emails and buy things from all over the world and just get it delivered at my home in this weird sort of landscape that never had existed any time before in human history. You know, we're, we're sitting here on the banks of the Potomac River, right? So we're here in Crystal City. Just, you know, a couple miles up here is Old Town Alexandria. And just beyond that is Mount Vernon. And I bike that route almost every day. I live up there. George Washington, founder, George Washington, would take his wares from Mount Vernon and tunnel them down a cart path right along the river to that Alexandria farmer's market every Saturday and sell it there. Imagine that sense of place and what you would get and the food and the environment. Imagine that kind of seasonality playing a real role in people's lives. That's lost today. That's completely lost today. I think one of the most beautiful things about travel is it just it makes you human again. You know, we would, we, you and I love Africa, and I was just saying to you, you know, we'd, I was just in quite literally the cradle of humanity. You know, I, maybe 30 miles from Olduvai, where they found the footprints that are 3.4 million years old, the first direct evidence of an upright hominid, actually a pair of them at least, walking across this landscape when a lovers. volcano was, probably lovers, maybe. They, certainly you could see the tilt in one. They, they think it was because the female, the smaller of the footprints, was carrying a baby on her hip. 
But it was a day that we know it was raining because you can see the little drops of rain. There were hyena tracks and jackal tracks and guinea fowl tracks crisscrossing their footprints. Same thing animals I see today. You stand on that soil, you smell that air, you watch, look at those umbrella-shaped trees, and you think there is cellular memory here. If you've never even ever been to East Africa, if you're a human being and you're in that landscape, you go, oh my God, I feel like I'm at home. The air is about 70 degrees. The breeze is relatively dry. The landscape of short grass coupled with those umbrella-shaped trees is exactly what we make our lawns and our golf courses to look like. And if you squint and see some baboons in the distance, they look like a bunch of guys playing golf way out there, you know, poking around with a little stick in the dirt, right? And, and you're like, I'm home, even if you've never been there. So there is something real about humans that makes us want to connect to place. And I think we've been unbelievably disconnected, with some benefits, of course. I think it's time to reconnect. To me, that's the best part of travel. Hmm. So I want to talk about my darling friend Madigan's mother, who I'd love you to meet. Her name's Maybao. She lives on, I think, 200 acres on the edge of Yosemite. Oh and she is the most extreme environmentalist I have ever met. Okay. And she thinks global warming is good. It's going to rid half the planet of people who don't deserve to be here. And there'll be space so we can grow and farm again. She dumpster dives in San Francisco. I'm going to go dumpster diving with her for one of my episodes. Because she's like, I know where all the good spots are. People like her, it's too extreme and people can't hear it. And it pushes them away. But somewhere in the middle there needs to be a path where people would want to tread along. How do we get people to do that with us, to believe in what we're doing and not feel like, oh, it's non-profit world, I can't engage, or it's Maybau, it's so extreme, I can't engage? Great question. Look, I have a lot of respect for folks who live a particular kind of life because they truly embody this notion of, don't preach, just live it and do it yourself. And you can learn a lot from that. It is difficult, though, to scale that. There's an old story about how Nehru, you know, the first prime minister of India, once lamented that it took a significant part of his treasury to keep the Mahatma, meaning Mahatma Gandhi, to keep the Mahatma in poverty. And what he meant by that is every time Gandhi had to travel somewhere, they had to bring like two goats, a spinning wheel, a whole bunch of rice, you know, like he needed the accoutrements to create the illusion of what he was trying to do because he was a symbol. He had been sort of transformed into a symbol. So, and I understand that and I understand the value in that and what you can learn from that. But I don't think that the way to solve the world's problems is to sort of, you spend time in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Boulder has this sort of attitude that I'm going to get in trouble with people in Boulder, but they, they know what I mean. Like there's this sort of general feeling like if we just solve Boulder's problems, the world will be fine. Yep. And it won't be fine because there are people on the other side of the planet who, for whom a plastic bottle, which we don't want anymore and don't want to have, is this only way in which they can carry water. You literally drive around some parts of rural Tanzania and there are kids on the side of that street literally asking you to chuck out a plastic bottle because they want that container. So that, that, you know, it's a big complex world. And so what we try to do, what I try to do, is find a way to seek inspiration from folks like Mabel or Boulder, but understand that the challenge we have is how do we scale? Without scale, and that's, you know, you talked about your Tesla. I mean, that's really what Elon was willing, you know, he could have stayed at trying to create a boutique car at a very high price point, And he could have created a successful company doing that forever. The minute he just decided, no, 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 I don't need this. What I really need to do is get these batteries into everything. They had to completely change that model. But that is the future. It's not having a seventy, eighty, $100,000 Tesla. It's having genuinely a $30,000 electric vehicle that can do amazing things. Tell me a personal story, something personal that it inspires you or you think about conservation because of some experience. There's an image that sticks with me, and it happened on a journey that I made. When I made the first documentary film that I was in, it was called Wildlife in a War Zone, and I did it for the BBC. 
And what I did was I retraced the footsteps of David Attenborough. So we grew up with David Attenborough. We're still growing up with David Attenborough. But back in the day, you know, that guy, you know, was the only model we had on television about what someone who cared about animals did. What most people don't know is that his first beginning into television was actually in Sierra Leone. It was actually in the same village that I grew up in, quite literally. So I went back to Sierra Leone and sort of retraced his early footprints. That was the show. One day during that show, we were traveling through a rainforest, very difficult terrain, trying to climb into a mountain, which even he didn't actually have the chance to explore. And we needed a place to camp. And there was a little village. And we kind of got to it just as dusk was setting and set up little tents on the surrounding edge of the village. And I walked into this village and I saw a gaggle of boys, eight, nine, ten years old, maybe about half a dozen or so of them. And they were crowded around a little smoky fire. And as I got to them, I could see that they had a, a white piece of metal tin that they had clearly cut from some signboard that, you know, you see on all those African streets. And they were using that tin to frantically fan the flames of this very smoky, dirty fire. They had something that they were roasting on top of the fire. And as I got closer, I realized first that it was a monkey, the dead monkey that these boys were burning the fur off and roasting kind of by hand. Second thing I noticed was the white piece of metal that they were using to fan the flames had a logo on it. And the logo said, World Food Program, WFP. I have a photo. I snapped a little photo. I didn't really fully understand the implications of what I had just seen until later that night as I was sitting in my tent with the rain dripping on it and looking through these images. Here's a bunch of kids in Africa who are going to share a very small monkey as their primary source of protein. And they're fanning the flames with a signboard for the World Food Program. And it struck me like a bolt of lightning if there was those light, light bulb moments that when, when governments fail, when civil society fails, when even nonprofits flee, it's nature that provides the ultimate safety net. It's nature that holds. And that was a revelation to me that you cannot protect people if you're going to do it on the, at the expense of nature. It has to be that nature has to be that underlying safety net for all of us. It's so beautiful. What makes you um, very angry about this business? Because it's tricky. A lot of this is tricky. I really wonder what people are doing with the enormous amount of wealth that they have. It doesn't make me angry as much as it makes me really sad. You know, our chairman at our last board meeting made a very interesting comment. And he basically said, I look around this table and I think about the first board meeting we had. And if I just think about how much those individual people who are sitting around the table, how well they have done in life and compare it with how much this organization has grown. While we have grown, and we're grateful for that, personal wealth has galloped ahead. And that's the piece that I really kind of get both frustrated and angry and sad about, that we are going to have a generation that is wealthier than any generation that has ever come on the planet and that generation is going to turn over. People are going to die. And that money hasn't been put to the service of the planet. You think about this really just a simple point. Nature is never going to be as cheap as it is today. So there's no point in waiting right. five years. You're not going to get a bargain next month. So if you have something and you want to do something to save the planet, do it now. You know what makes me angry? Giant endowments. Giant endowments make me angry. I don't get that. I don't get how you're saving so much capital for some future when the crisis is happening right now. And the ability to change that trajectory is so much within our grasp. Every day that goes by, the freedom to move, the, the freedom we have to operate and change trajectory gets much narrower. But basically, we don't want to put money towards things that we cannot see. 
To me, there's the fundamental issue with conservation. I can't see it. I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. Show me. I can't see it. The trees yeah. look fine. The river looks lovely. Yeah. Like, are oh, the planes going? Everything yeah. looks fine. I need to see how fucked we are yeah. in order for me to care. Yeah, I think Not uh, me, but the world. No, I think you're, you're right. I think we need to visualize it. We need to see it. We need to see the impact of it. We also need to see the impact of what we're giving to. Right. Because the spending that we do today, I mean, you, you know, the amount of money, private money, private money that goes into ocean protection is less than... You know, the last Marvel movie. Right. That, that's insane to me, right? That makes me or, or the amount of money that goes into the Amazon, right? Private money that's going into protecting the Amazon, which is on fire right now. It's on everyone. Actually, the pledges that have been made are less than like two of these planes that we've just seen take off right by here. The scale of the problem is so much bigger than the goodwill that we're generating. And so we have to think about this a little bit differently. We have to work on, one people who have the ability and capacity to convince them they can do something great and important and good right now. And I genuinely think, I mean, I think that for most folks, it's not a question of how much can they give. It's a question of how much can they imagine. You know, people will put a $150 million gift to build a building at a university that has a, you know, $30 billion trust fund sitting behind it. But that same kind of cathedral thinking doesn't seem to happen with the environment. The second thing is we got to be able to show. we got to be able to show that we're making progress in a real meaningful way. My last question for you, which was on my mind, is you call yourself Asian, which I love. How is it to be Asian in Sierra Leone? Did you think about it? Did yeah. you feel Asian? Yeah. Did you feel different? We thought about it every day. I've always felt like I'm a little bit of a stranger in a strange land. I've never fully felt like I've actually ever fit anywhere really well. Probably the closest, and strangely, probably the closest I've come to at being completely at ease in my skin is either in East Africa or, interestingly, in Montana, which is a very wide place. Uh, but there's something about that landscape and the people who I surround myself with in this sort of rural part of Montana, Granite County, that I find honest. Love. We're always aware of our skin color. And, you know, people who say that they don't see color, it's sort of insane because you always see That's color. That's racist. It's racist it's, to say you I don't, don't think see they're color. Saying it because they are, I, don't, I think they're saying it in sort of a way to sort of say, I'm not. I, but, by implication, you are. But then. everyone who's of color sees color all the right. time. Of course. Being in Asia, when we left Sri Lanka to come to Africa, we had never seen, I had never seen a black person. I don't think my mother had either. The only portrayals we had was on television. And imagine what that was like in the 70s. So, you know, it was a huge cultural shift to all of a sudden have our doctor be a black African, or the pilot who flew the little plane that would drop supplies off to be black African. That was an amazing shift. It really helped open my eyes to what makes us similar rather than what makes us different. So good news about that kind of childhood is that it makes me a bit of a chameleon no matter where I travel. I can usually slip in. It also makes me always a little bit feeling like I'm a little bit of an outsider. New York taught me for the first time in my life, to feel okay in my own skin, because I was just part of all this. In in Africa, I felt of the place, but also an unwelcome visitor, you know, <laughs> being white. And I felt that my parents were fierce anti-apartheid, employed people of color, helped people of color, but we were also part of the problem. As much as we were not directly the problem, we were indirectly the problem. What was weird is like, I used to think, why does no one else have black friends or Indian friends or Asian friends? It was just me. I was the only one, like, of the kind of realm. The white kids hung out, I hung out with everybody. But it's complicated, you know. It's, it's you know, prejudices are strange things. They're literally learned over small periods of time. You know, I, I have a baby daughter, brand new. 10 weeks old. I didn't know this, but babies can't see color. They really are colorblind. And they learn to see color somewhere between like two months to four months. So it's clear to me that certainly color prejudice is learned behavior. 
there's no adaptation for that in evolutionary terms, right? So you will learn it. And just like you learn some of these things, you can unlearn these things too. My theory on a lot of this stuff is, let's talk about race. I'm going to fuck it up. I'm going to say the wrong thing. But let's talk about it. No, I agree. Rather correct me. No, I agree. And shame me or whatever you want to do. But rather, let's talk about it and let me feel uncomfortable because it helps me on my path. Yeah. And I've, to be, you know, this this could be treading into dangerous waters here for me, but I, I will say that some of the reactions one gets on social media and stuff like that, not just what I've seen people say, who have fully acknowledged that they are learning, it just seems like people want people to be born perfect. And perfect meaning in their own mold. Right. And we're not. We're right. humans. We have huge histories that we come with. And it's our ability to leave those at the doorstep and transition. That's what makes it special. So I'm really a bit saddened and really dismayed at the vitriol that is thrown at anyone who kind of stumbles. Right. Pretending that we're perfect, you know? I love to stumble. I stumble all the time. It's perfect. I stumble and then I think my husband helps me get back up and he's like, everything's fine. And I love that, you know, I, I think that the stumble is almost better than the idea of being perfect. Completely. The best stumbles is when, you, when you're on the road and you, you, the, the stumbles you make during travel is what makes those journeys special, whether it's through life or whether it's through a physical journey. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I had a good time. I hope you did too. If you'd like to reach us, go to Everywhere Podcast on Instagram, Everywhere Pod on Twitter, or the website, everywherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Scheffler, signing off. I'll be seeing you everywhere. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.